As Andrew and I continued talking, we uh, continued a bit about cancel culture and also talked about who really cares about good theology and does it matter what we believe about God, even if it might not affect how we daily live. We talk about this in this coming episode and also in the episode after part three. I wanted to go back to something you said because I, I just like popped into my mind. Yeah. Um, and I think it maybe it's just something I, I need to clarify because you uh, and that I'm curious to dive in deeper on that yeah. uh, you talked a bit about like Muhammad and like some of the different things with like his life and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, so what do we do then? You know, because I, I guess in my mind, I was comparing that to, let's say, someone like King David. Uh, and, you know, there's yeah. it's easy for most Christians, most biblical literate people to imagine all the terrible things he did in his life. Or yeah. I think of um. I was actually somehow got in this deep rabbit hole on um, on like first and second Samuel, which they are like the most difficult books in the entire Bible for me to preach on and interpret. Cause there's just so much strange stuff, but there was like one, it was like an interpretive um, uh, like quandary where like, they're not quite sure like different translations how to translate this passage. And I don't have it off the, off the top of my head, but it's where like David went and conquered a city um, and the words used, at least in like a certain phrase, are kind of unclear where it says in some translations that he put the citizens or the people of that city, you know, to work under uh, like saws and like, mm-hmm. like olive presses and you know, stuff like that. Uh, and so like some people think it's the word work, but what I guess more recent scholarship seems to be finding is that like, you know, it might have been that he actually... Uh, they're not really sure what that phrase means. And they think it actually might mean like he tortured them to death with saws and wine presses and stuff like that, which is a pretty, you know, messed yeah. up revelation. I don't, I mean, then again, I don't, I guess the, the, the thing I think about is, well, it doesn't really change that much considering what he did with Bathsheba or what, you know, all the other messed up stuff he's done in his life makes him like a little bit worse of a person. But right. then again, it's not, you know, a, a, terribly huge revelation even though that's a horrible thing but so i'm curious what do we do with you know people like, like abraham had done some messed up things or the, yeah, the right. bible is full of broken messed up people so what do we you know how do we uh like is that different for us you know when you're talking about Muhammad, i guess that's just what comes to mind with me yeah no that's actually a really good connection and i and i do think at the core in the scriptures you know we see god's you know consistent work with his people um, you know, to bring them into relationship with him. It's this constant, um, you know, they're constantly running away, constantly coming back. Obviously, the morality of uh, Peter Kreeft, he's one of my favorite philosophers of all time, still alive. Uh, read anything by Peter Kreeft and you'll love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he talks about, um, he's an apologist and philosopher at Boston College. He kind of shares about, yeah, like in, in those biblical times, our morality was that of a teenager, you could say. Like the way that God had revealed his, um, you know, message of, you know, covenant and his relationship with his people. I mean, they were living in, in a time where their morality, obviously our morality now is very different. Why, why are people mm-hmm. getting so angry about all of this, um, you know, uh, our, our Catholic Saint Junipero Serra, who actually came here and did incredible work for the natives here, actually freed them from so much, you know, slavery and, and so much um, you know, horrible things, but, you know, he, he had to, in that time, uh, keep order. And one of the ways Mm. that they did that was, I think, like in high school or in, you know, my parents in high school, they would get a freaking paddle and get slapped. Like that was just 40 years ago. And that, at that time, in Paracera's time, yeah, there was some type of order 
you know, that was either through some type of paddle or I don't know what they claim that, you know, people were whipped or stuff like that. But that, that type of um, way of being reprimanded was different. It was just a different time of being reprimanded. Just like 40 years ago, my parents tell me if they were in school, they would get freaking spanked. Mm-hmm. If that happened today, you would probably go to jail, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so God worked with his people, I think, in, in the Old Testament in a way, at least Peter Kreeft describes, the morality was um, in, in the time of the human race was at like a teenager level. I don't know if that makes sense. Is that like a... Okay. Is that that a younger, that's how he described it. So um, obviously a lot of these things, whether it was rape, genocide, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. The Old Testament's wild. Um, it actually makes for me it more believable. Um, I wouldn't believe a Old Testament or a New Testament that was just perfect people with perfect poetry and all of this, you know, victory and no, and no questioning and the Psalms to me speak of a very human David. And Mm -hmm. so in relation to Muhammad, I I do think there is still a difference. All the old Testament is pointing to the person of Christ. So the old Testament is fulfilled in the new and, and Christ is this archetype that is clearly spoken of and prophesied all throughout the old Testament. So the way God worked with his people, the horrible mistakes that Abraham, Moses, I mean, go through the list, Cain and Abel, whatever of, of people that, did horrible things, you know, um, to me, that speaks of a real human race and a real human experience. And the difference with Muhammad is that there's no fulfilling that revelation. His revelation is pointing to a way. He never claimed to be the way. So okay. when, when Muhammad claimed a lot of his revelation, he said this, and the Quran is essentially the way that the Quran is told to be reliable, this is what you Muslims believe, is that because the the literature is so beautiful. Hmm. So if you argue any of the type of like, you know, different parts in, in, in the Quran, they'll just say it's true because it's beautiful, because it's so beautifully written. It has nothing to do with the historical critical method or any of these other ways that we have come to know the reliability of our, our scriptures. So, yeah, I think there, there is a correlation in the sense of, yeah, Muhammad did, was very sexually immoral. Um, yeah, was, you know, obviously uh, really sharing his message by fear and, and war and, and fighting and the sword. Um, very different than Jesus. Hmm. Uh, we see, you know, when Peter takes the sword out to cut off the ear of, um, you know, the, the yeah, high priest servant or something. Yeah, like G- Jesus, you know, says, put the sword down. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And, um, you know, that'll obviously get into a, we can get into the moral theology now, you know, about yeah. just war and defending uh, oneself, which I think obviously has, has evolved and we are allowed to defend ourselves. Um, and actually Bishop Barron, if you haven't watched any Bishop Barron stuff, dude, he is just an incredible intellect for the church right now. But he kind of shares that whole scripture about turning the other cheek, hmm. um, which actually I think the commentaries on that he shares, it has nothing to do with being submissive to suffering. Um, it actually has a very different connotation. And I forget how, how he brings it up. It's a really good explanation. You can YouTube it. Sure. But, um, okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on that. I, I've never, um, kind of thought of it that way it's like yeah there are some super messed up stuff in the old testament and how does that correspond with 
a religion such as Islam, where the founder also, you know, was doing some really um, immoral things by our standards. Yeah, again, I think the answer would be Christ. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's a great question, though. Yeah. No, that actually, and I, I was just thinking this question. I don't think I like gave you any preparation for it and like, you know, stuff I sent you, but um, no, I'm just so curious because this is something um, that, you know, Gracie, my wife and I were, were talking about recently is, yeah. you know, with, with cancel culture and all this stuff going on, um, which I, I feel like happens, you know, on both sides, I think as Christians I or you just heard say, of what that means. Cancel culture is when you just shut down something when it's against your own belief, right? Or like, uh, that's thing. I think it's a very broad thing. Um, you know, so I would say like a good example is like you find racist tweets that someone posted in like 2006 or something right. and you say, okay, like we're, uh, you know, you're fired or I don't know, whatever. Or, you know, um, I, I think it happens, you know, both sides of the aisle, but you know, I, maybe that's up for debate, but, um, I, I know what you're talking about now. Patrick Coffin, uh, just talks about that. He's a, an Orange County guy, actually. You would honestly, I should like set you guys are you in orange county no if only uh no i'm just i'm living in uh santa monica oh dang well someday yeah. we'll hang out with patrick hoffman he's a he's a genius but he just talked about <laughs> this cancel culture and yeah it's like when does it end you know yeah well i guess so what i'm curious about because this is what i think is, is very interesting like i totally get um you know th this is i guess very modern and once again political kind of <clears throat> aspect to it but you know it comes to tearing down statues um, probably one of the most convincing arguments for me was when someone would say, you know, like for someone who's a black person or maybe Native American or whatever it might be, and they say, I, you know, I see this statue of, let's say, um, you know, George Washington, or well, let's say like Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis, you know, maybe that, that's a little bit more, you know, easier to argue. They say that person, you know, wanted to enslave people like me and we shouldn't celebrate that. And I go, I hear you. I, I don't think it's such a bad idea in that case to rename a high school that's For named sure. like Robert E. Lee or, you know, Jefferson Davis, or whatever. Totally get that. But the thing that I find so interesting is um, because we don't want to celebrate people like that is then what do you do about the much more morally gray people like, uh, like George Washington, or I think mm -hmm. he had owned slaves, or I'm pretty, I'm like really sure uh, Jefferson did where, mm -hmm. you know, Washington, like, you know, got the country together, like got us through the toughest parts of establishing the country and the constitution, all that. And that's why he's, you know, generally regarded as one of the greatest presidents of all time. Right. And yeah, in general, like that's cause for celebration. And yeah, I totally see from that perspective of, wow. Yeah. Like if then again, though, they own slaves. And so it's kind of, it's, it's very difficult from a morally great perspective. So the statues is its whole other issue. You know, I'm not as, as concerned about that, but right. I think, what's interesting for me is the ideas. So another great one is, you know, Grace and I were talking about Aristotle and Plato that they had sex with young boys. Like, and that's a pretty disgusting thing mm. for just about any culture around the world now, or, you know, especially for us as uh, American right. or Western, Western culture. Um, and, but does that take away from the ideas and the philosophy that they gave us? So same thing with, with Jefferson, when he writes, you know, all men are created equal. And yet, did he really mean all or, you know, was it just men? And yeah. So, you know, how do we, can we separate the ideals and the teaching from, you know, the, the life and the failings or, or the, or just the other bad teaching and, and ideals that, you know, these, these people had. Another example, Martin Luther King, 
Patrick Coffin was just sharing. I'll text you the video. It's like nine minutes long. He literally sure. just like destroys this stuff. But Martin Luther King cheated on his wife and slept mm-hmm. with multiple other women. I mean, no one, no one's brought that up. You know, he oh, also, yeah. after that, you know, he, no one's brought that. That's just starting to, to come out, you know, about what, you know, he did. And like, you know, yeah, it's just, yeah, man, it's just so messy. You know, even this guy, Martin Luther King that we've kind of worshiped, like, you know, cheated on his wife and multiple other women. And um, yeah, does it mean, yeah, do we just like forget the things that he said and he did? I don't think so. But when when people are trying to completely eradicate, you know, certain certain people's yeah lives and witnesses because they weren't perfect, I, I do again think that Jesus has a good answer to this, which is, uh, you know, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the splinter mm. out of your brothers. Like, how many of these people have committed horrible sexual sin that that are these are the ones taking down the statues, or how many different ways now have we experienced? you know, gossip or other ways that we've enslaved people, maybe not physically, but maybe we've enslaved, Mm -hmm. you know, people to, you know, resent and and anger and, um, yeah, other, other plenty of ways that we've teared down each other. Um, yeah, I just don't know how often we're actually looking at ourselves. and Jacques Philippe in his book, um, Interior Freedom talks about the reality that, yeah, before we go and change the world and reform the church, we need to ask God to help change the world of our hearts and reform mm. our hearts. So, you know, that's maybe more of a, yeah, maybe more of a hopeful explanation of what could happen. But yeah, when, when people are taking, people want to take down John Wayne airport, North County, because John Wayne, mm. who is this, you know, manly of man, manliest of men, you know, cowboy, mm-hmm. um, apparently did some, you know, has some like comment or something that, can kind of be tweaked it wasn't even racist but now can be tweaked of stuff you wrote down you know they kind of can be tweaked into this you know kind of racist you know sphere and it's just like at the end of the day what are we trying to accomplish here because if we're trying to eradicate you know i don't know sin it's like there's only one person that can fully do that and that's jesus so when these people who have this very idealistic again we're wanting this utopian experience on earth, which we'll never get. That doesn't mean I think we pursue, um, you know, right practice and equality. Again, these good things that we said. But once again, I don't think these things are um, initially given to all of us. I think these are things that are discovered. And Jordan Peterson, I think, actually argues this, that we're living. The only reason that we're able to even have the freedom to come against these, you know, I mean, gosh, they're trying to change the chiefs. All these sports teams now, they're trying to change these names because that's, you know, offensive to the Cherokee or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think all of these things were trying to, yeah, eradicate um, things that won't be able to be completely eradicated. So, yeah, that doesn't mean we don't pursue freedom and justice for all. But again, these realities are being based on a Judeo-Christian values world system. Mm. They really are. All of these things that we have the freedom to speak, they're founded on these men that believed, you know, that there was a God. Obviously, they weren't. Um, all the, from my knowledge, the founding fathers were either, you know, Puritans, I think, right? Or Calvinists, weren't they? They weren't. Oh, uh, I know for, they were like 
Protestants and different differing Protestant denominations. But I know some like Jefferson and Ben Franklin were like deists. Yeah, but they essentially believed in, in a mind behind the design. Again, I keep going to that hmm. phrase because they believed in an intelligence above ours. And when yeah. you avoid reality of that, again, people can decide whatever they want. And we've seen what that's done to culture. You know, when people decide that they have the fullness of truth, that they are the ones that are, you know, to bring about this freedom. And there's just, yeah, it, it never works. You know, again, it's not practical. But it's amazing how people will reject, you know, the teachings of Christ while standing on the foundation mm-hmm. of a Judeo-Christian platform. <laughs> you know, they can't do it from this just empty space of, of nihilism. They're actually standing on the roots of a country founded on the belief that there's something more than just them. Yeah. So the cancel culture, like whatever that's called, yeah, it's not based on reason because there's so many people and there's so many situations they're missing. Patrick Coffin goes through that. Like why he goes through a list of people, Martin Luther being Martin Luther King Jr. being one of them. Why aren't they taking and destroying all their stuff? It's so selective Hmm. and they're missing so many other people. Margaret Singer who founded Planned Parenthood. I think that's her name. Mm -hmm. She specifically says that she wanted to eradicate black babies from the world. Oh yeah, I think I've heard something about that. I why should research that? that cuz I've heard it so much but I've I've never well, Why like, yeah, so why are we taking it. down planned parenthood? Hmm. They literally started it was founded on the premise of ridding the world of black babies. Mhm. So why aren't we talking about that? You know, I mean it's so one-sided. It's not based on reason, it's not based on evidence. It's based on emotion again. Mm-hmm. People feel like they want this to change, so therefore it's true. And yeah. I wonder, like, you know, could you argue the same? I, I, I know I'm just most plain devil's advocate here. Like, could you argue the same about us? You know, I think um, I'd gone and seen like a movie uh, with someone. It was like whatever the one about the woman who was, um, she was like, it was like Abby Johnson or something like that. She was like, oh, oh, unplanned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was like, you know, real high up in Planned Parenthood. And, you know, they show like, uh, you know, it's like CGI or something like that, but an yeah. abortion. Um, and, you know, I wonder, is that just playing on our emotions of, you know, I, like going to the moral foundations theory of this disgust of it? Um, you know, so I wonder, you know, are, are there are there people who are pro-life or is yeah. our argument mostly emotion? Not mostly, but is there a, a an important component of it that's emotion and that sort of um, reaction? Yeah, you can't obviously rid the human person of emotion. So in any of these decisions in social justice or equality, there's going to be emotion involved. Um, Peter Kreese shares that, um, you know, in the word emotion is motion. It's actually emotions are technically in the contemplative life. I love the mystics and, Hmm. you know, of of the church. And man, if you get into some Teresa of Avila and John the Cross, the depth of mystical union that exists uh, that we can experience here, you know, in the, in the Trinity, dude, it's just amazing. Hmm. And yeah, he talks about emotion has that word motion. It's supposed to bring us closer to God. Why do we love Mozart and beauty and art? These things, why does, why do Protestants love making incredible lighting and great sound and, and enhancing the worship experience? Because when motion and why do, why are churches built in such a way that lifts up the soul? I mean, all Gothic architecture, 
you know, in, in, in the medieval times was supposed to lift the soul toward heaven. Hmm. Our, our senses are good insofar as those emotions are brought up to the contemplation of God. Love, okay. God, love of others, right? So I don't think emotion is bad. And mm -hmm. I do think it's okay to show the reality of what is happening in an abortion. I don't think that is um, in any way just working on the human heart to make people feel bad about it. Because we have incredible science also to back up the reality, which people can obviously is, can debate, but when a, you know, a sperm and an egg come together, all the potentiality for life already exists. Mm -hmm. um, everything's already determined in that initial second of life. And we actually can show that from a scientific mm -hmm. point of view. So I think when they show it in the movie, I actually got to see it twice um, in LA and New York before it came out. Oh, wow. Okay. Both times. Yeah. Like I, the one in New York, I was there for an event and I got to kind of go to this showing and there the back row is like 25 nuns, you know, the sisters of life. <laughs> So just imagine these super holy, you know, very, um, you know, these the, the super faithful women watching a really disgusting, I mean, these, these, these women have given their lives to God completely mm -hmm. and pray, obviously, you know, constantly, and they don't watch things of this nature, you know? Mm -hmm. So I remember when that scene came on, women were, you know, crying, sobbing loudly. I mean, it was, it really hit these hit these women um these these nuns these sisters mm -hmm. of life and yeah i don't think that's bad mm -hmm. so i think that's a different play on the emotion so i guess we have to again that's a reality so what so what the doctor is doing to the woman's body uterus and child that's a reality mm -hmm. emotionalism i think we were speaking of before doesn't really have to do with um yeah a bodily um a bodily experience you know i guess yeah. we were speaking of two different entities one is maybe emotional um you know assent to a, a topic of social justice and then when you're watching something happen that you know is happening to the human human body the female's body which is grotesque and and detrimental to their health um to me it's a different thing but still i think on both sides it's not bad but if it ends there, I think, again, emotion is supposed to bring us in motion to contemplation of truth. So there's a higher truth to, to that experience. I'd say on both sides, not to negate the people that are really concerned with social justice topics. I think when they play on the emotions, um, it's a very natural human thing. But if it ends there, I think that's where the problem comes in. Yeah, I hear that. Okay. Hmm. And I'm just thinking out loud. So these are not things that, I'll, you know, it's like, I'm totally open to be wrong about everything I say. Um, just to throw that out there. Oh, yeah. I, I hear you on that because I feel like that's always like my thing. That's why I need the podcast. Like you change my mind because I want to be willing. Like if there's enough evidence that comes in, then I'm like, oh, okay. Well, well, that's the way that I've tried to share with people I live. I live like Socrates said we should to follow the evidence where it leads. Hmm. And for me, that's led me to the Catholic Church. That's led me to the person of Christ. I did look at a lot of different religions and ideas, you know, hmm. obviously not exhaustively. You will never be able to read everything on every topic. Yeah. You can't. You walk into Barnes and Noble. If you read for 24 hours a day for your whole life, you would maybe get through 1% of them. Mm -hmm. And now with the information explosion, um, I was actually just reading this in 1777, the first library Benjamin Franklin had 
and it had 42 books. That was the first library. Hmm. I have that in my room. I have more than 42 books in my room. Yeah. And so the information age, I think, has, yeah, it's it's been, I think, more than we're capable of handling. And it's also been an incredible empowering tool. Yeah. Know? No, I totally hear you. Um, I'm curious what you think, because, uh, you know, I've spent like just a little tiny dabble in, in the Catholic world a little bit and, uh. and talked with, you know, folks like yourself. Um, so, you know, I'm because one of the things that I've been talking about, I actually, it's so funny. I have, I have a student at my church who he, you know, grew up in this Protestant church, Christian or Protestant Christian school and is now converting to orthodoxy. Uh, I don't know exactly what like specific orthodox uh, type of church. Um, but so funny, we talk about it and it's so interesting, the difference in perspective, you know, for example, a great one is he, for him, a really big thing is apostolic succession. Um, And that's something that like Protestants will talk about once in a blue moon about this, you know, line of Jesus discipling his disciples who discipled more people. And they'd say that, you know, there is in a way an an unbroken line. I don't know what that would even mean, but from Jesus to me, if someone discipled me and someone discipled that person ad infinitum back to Jesus, um, I would think, I don't know, maybe there's somewhere where someone received the Holy spirit randomly, but um. So that's, but that's like a big value from what I've gathered of most, you know, Catholics or most, most Orthodox people. Um, mm. Or another one, um, actually, Emily and Daniel um, recommended a book for me that I read called, um, I actually don't remember the name of it, but by Scott Hahn. And, um, Rome Sweet Home? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Rome Sweet Home. I always mix up things. Sometimes I call it Home Sweet Rome or something like that. I was going to say, yeah, that one or Lamb's Supper are good ones to read. So if you read that one, that's actually good because the next one right after that is Lamb's Supper where he goes into the mass and essentially derives it all from scripture. Oh yeah. And from revelation. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. Oh yeah. The big thing I noticed him talking about was the covenant theology and the covenant relationship that, yeah, and he was just, that. yeah. And he was saying, you know, like, he's like, he's a Presbyterian minister. He's like, I try talking about this stuff and no one cares and it's just not a big deal. And yet he found that so rich in the Catholic church. And I read that and I was like, whatever like the, the covenant yeah. theology is not that big a deal yeah. not that it shouldn't be or it can't be uh for a christian um but i found that that's why like for me the more i delve into protestantism that you know uh, for example uh and my friends love to like roast me on this and i'm totally fine with it but yeah. that i'm i i generally use the label calvinist um i think that's what best describes where i'm at yeah right um you know with with free will or whatever if you want to talk about that you know i'm fine with right. that or you know, that, 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 uh, school of thoughts answer the problem evil. So that's what best fits me. Mm-hmm. And that's like the stuff I'm, I'm concerned about. So I, right. I'm just curious, you know, for you, what are some of the things with the Catholic church, the Catholic faith that, um, that really, that you really gravitate towards that really, you know, capture your heart and attention? Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I think, um, for me, what, I mean, no other church claims to have the fullness of truth. So as Catholics, mm-hmm like we claim to have the fullness of truth and that's a pretty major claim that we need to be able to back up, you know? And so, yeah, if you take out, you know, any type of uh, argument from corruption, which, yeah, there's just, there's never going to be a human run institution that has perfect people constantly. So for me, when uh, I bring up apostolic succession, I find that people in general, whether Protestant or or non-believers were bringing up the cor- corruption throughout the years, and and therefore that, mm-hmm. you know, Martin Luther breaking had valid arguments, which I think some of them he did, 
I don't think it follows that you create your own church. So the fracting that has happened now, where you know, if you disagree um, with someone in your church, you can go start your own. I just don't see that in the early church. So the more that I studied early apostolic succession, what it grounded me on was the reality that we actually have an interpretive authority that allows us to know what the scriptures mean. So there wasn't a Bible, there wasn't a canon until 325, right? Mm-hmm. So there was no book that was referenced to, and there's nowhere even in the Bible that it specifically requires believers to only believe what's in the Bible. The mm-hmm. Bible is not even a word that's referenced in the Bible. Yeah. Right. So you can't find the Trinity. You can't find a lot of things that, you know, um, I find with my Protestant brothers and sisters. They'll go to, you know, the three Corinthians or uh, Timothy 316 that, you know, scripture is profitable and training in righteousness and all these things. But nowhere it says that it requires that um, everything in the Bible can be known from the Bible and how mm-hmm. to interpret it. So for me, apostolic succession gave us uh, kind of like I shared earlier that we already see that in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts that there was already dialogue about interpreting scriptures right away. And they actually already, you already see a lived communal experience of, we would call the first Pope Peter and, and, and Paul, you know, um, uh, coming together to dialogue about circumcision, about what foods to eat. There was a council, there was a meeting where they interpreted the scriptures and, you know, came to a conclusion. So for me, in order to know how, like, how do I know what this scripture means? How do I know what, um, yeah, how I'm supposed to live this? Apostolic succession gives us a, a lived expression of sacred scripture and tradition, which in multiple places, uh, you know, St. Paul references the need for scripture and tradition and oral tradition. So the apostolic succession, I, I kind of fell in love with early on simply because the church was first lived and this is all in the gospel, obviously, of Luke and, and St. Paul's writing, through oral tradition. There's mm-hmm. no, there was no writing of it. So, yeah, I think the reason I've, I was gravitated toward apostolic succession, and we can show, all the way back to Peter, um, no matter how many messed up guys there were along, because there was a lot, that um, the church has been faithful to, we call it the deposit of faith. Hmm. So the teachings of the disciples, um, there's been no further revelation since then. We have that in some documents called Dei Verbum, um, hmm. on divine revelation. And we have, yeah, like a, a congruent of unified teaching where I can go anywhere in the world and, and know with, you know, a pretty high certainty that me going to mass on Sunday, I'm, I'm going to get the same Orthodox teaching that the disciples taught. Hmm. Oh yeah, know? I hear that. That's, that's pretty huge for me because I think, um, you know, Jesus in John 17 prayed that we be one. And for me, yeah, a tough part in, in, in the Protestant world, um, one, like I said before, being so fed by so many different pastors, mm-hmm. it is hard for me to conclude that Jesus would foresee a church that would be so fractured. And that oh, interpretation, yeah. and interpretation would come down to pastor's preference. Hmm. So I actually don't have any interpretive power with the scriptures, I actually have to submit to what the apostolic succession has extrapolated through the last 2000 years, you know? So that's why mm-hmm. you have Irenaeus, you got Ignatius in the year 109, um, you got Clement of Rome. You have so many early church fathers that already started to show this reality of um, apostolic succession 
and councils where men would come together, priests, bishops, Augustine in the fourth century, would come together and discuss these topics of how to interpret certain scriptures, certain teachings of the church. So that's why as Catholics, we value scripture mm -hmm. and tradition. It's not just one or the other. Oh yeah, I hear you. Um, because um, that's where, yeah, we find that real unity, you know? So I guess that kind of best explains for me apostolic succession, you know? And I know there's plenty of disagreements along, along the way with that. Um, and I'm open to talking about them. I'm not uh, a whiz or, you know, <laughs> a PhD in all of these answers, but um, I know there's actually, yeah, a lot of good work um, in multiple different Catholic um, apologists. Mm -hmm. I've been doing things like this with, with Protestants more frequently now, I think in the last 20 years, which I think is just super helpful because before we couldn't talk about this stuff. You know, it would just be this, this like yelling match or yeah. you're just like, dude, you believe that it's all works. And then it's like, you believe that it's just all scripture, sola scriptura, sola fide. And there's never any dialogue, you know, and it's like, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I really enjoy. Yeah, I really enjoy the dialogue. So for me, it's hard to hard, hard to come to a church that can be determined by a pastor's interpretation of scripture and apostolic succession kind of answers that question for me. Well, while in regard to dogma and doctrine, there's actually a wide variety of exploration theologically. So Ratzinger wrote a book called Intro to Christianity, highly recommend it, mm -hmm. um, where he kind of goes into these topics, like even in the sense of dogma being, being clearly stated against Arianism and Gnostics that mm -hmm. were very, you know, rigorously defended by the Catholic Church um, to definitively say that these statements were wrong. You still have a landscape of theology that is very vast. So when people hear dogma and doctrine, they think it's just this blanket statement. You can't, you can't go into the depths more of the topic, but there's actually a dogma and doctrine just create a fence around a certain biblical truth, mm -hmm. either in faith or, or morals, that allows us to know with certainty that this is God's revelation, you know? Mm -hmm. So that fence of dogma and doctrine, I find for me personally, very beneficial insofar as I have a certainty of revealed truth, you know, that this is what God intended in the scripture. This is how the church lived it. So that's a real big point. Oh yeah. We really point to how the church lived out the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So that's, the, the, that's a really huge point for us is how did the church live out this teaching and how has that teaching evolved in the living um, practice of the church? So in regards to liturgy, like when Protestants go to mass, they're like, what the heck is this? <laughs> Honestly, the whole mass is scripture. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is, you know, so, and, and we're looking at guys again, like Clement of Rome or Polycarp, third, fourth century guys that are describing a mass that we see today, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, those are a couple of things that come to mind. Oh yeah, no, I totally get that. I mean, I think that's where, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of those things that I mean I think about a lot from like you know the the Catholic perspective and just where Protestants think differently or you know all that like for example I mean just Emily and Daniel I remember once I, I interviewed at some church and I was staying at their place because uh, it was in you know South Orange County yeah and they uh, they started asking me you know what's this church believe what denomination is it and I'm like well. Right. It's so funny because I was like, I'm not sure. It's just called, it's just non-denominational. And like, I remember Daniel, like 
was like, I could see like the gears turning in his head. And he's like, but like, what if someone, you know, who is handing out like the, the interpretation or the authority? And I'm like, well, it's a senior pastor. And yeah, if they change senior pastors or if the elder board changes, or if there's a general change in the church, then right. yeah, the doctrine that the church preaches might change. Right. Um, and he was like, but how can, how can you guys have a church like that? Like, and I was like, I hear you, man. Like it's, it's yeah. rough. Uh, Cause yeah, there, there's like always fights and disagreements. And that's why there's like, a, like thousands of different Protestant denominations. Cause it's like, well, we don't believe that there should be instruments and, you know, worship music. So, right. we're out of here. or, you know, we don't think that, you know, like one of the things that actually astounds me and that I just long to bring up in staff meetings, but I know is probably yeah. slightly taboo is I'm like, why do we do, I, I don't even know if Catholics know this, this is a thing in the Protestant world, but we do like communion. You know, we call it communion. Instead of oh, yeah, I've done it. I've gone to many of those. Okay. Yeah. They'll, we'll do it like once a month or something like right. that. And that to me is like just very surprising that it seems like it was such an important thing to the early Christians uh, that I go like, what, why would we not do it? Yeah, every week, and that's part of you know because of John Wesley, he's actually like right. a lot of his practices of just open air preaching. It was like, all right, the word of God, you know, and the and preaching is front and center rather than the Eucharist right. or the body of Christ and so on. Um, and well, so to Francis me, yeah. Chan, even guys like Francis Chan and um, Todd White, these Protestant kind of you know power evangelists, Francis Chan was just preaching on like I didn't know that the Catholic that the church for 2,000 years really believed that they needed to eat the body and blood of Jesus you know mm-hmm. so a man of that caliber intellectually for me it was just surprising that he didn't know that that was a church's belief for 2,000 years that we really need to eat the flesh and blood of Christ and he's like yeah he's cheering he's like we need to eat the flesh and blood and obviously he doesn't mean it in sub you know transubstantiation in the way that we do um, but I found that really interesting. Like I, I forget how many Protestants, um, not to not to their fault, because they just haven't been probably you know shared that this was actually a lived reality in the very beginning of the church. You know, but I guess my only question would be, yeah, like how how do you resolve that even with the elders and even with your pastor, they're actually still relying on tradition. Yeah. So, so they're still relying on tradition of people before them who have interpreted scripture in a certain way. So how do they, yeah, like, is it just something that doesn't, like, you're just like, ah, eh, we'll just, we'll do this endeavor of, of scholarship together and maybe see what we can come up with. And like, that satisfies you or how does it, how do you handle that? Oh man, I wish that the word scholarship was uh, less taboo in church because I feel like uh, it kind of depends in Protestant circles. Um, but, you know, I, I had this fascinating conversation and maybe this is slightly, you know, um, uh, a tangent, yeah. but I had a friend, you know, who we were arguing about something and I was like, no, if you look at like rigorous, you know, biblical scholarship, like that people are doing at like Princeton and Notre Dame and Duke, yeah, yeah. like they're saying this and they're like, oh, well, you know, like I, I hate to trash on them because they were my school's rival, but he, yeah, right. he went to Biola and he's like, but you got to understand like Biola, Dallas Theological Seminary, Moody. He's like, those were founded against, you know, at the time in like the early 1900s or whatever, like liberal Bible, like Bible theology from like Yale and Princeton, whatever, like those kind of places. That. And so they specifically were like, uh, and actually I'm, I'm curious. So don't, don't let me forget to ask yeah. you more about this, but like inerrancy is a big thing uh, with like those okay. people from that school of thought. Huh. Um, so I always wonder, like, what if that doctrine 
like similar like apostolic succession or whatever like protestants are like whatever like i never think about it i yeah. wonder you know if catholics are like oh, it's not much of a debate you know in our like inerrancy right. circles but um so like inerrancy is a big thing where it's sort of like we teach the bible line by line precept by precept just sort of the niv or you know kjv okay. whatever their translation is and we they'll look into the greek or the hebrew or whatever like mm-hmm. now and then but you know there's like it's sort of like there's a level you can go but there are certain answers that you kind of have to uh i'm trying to think of like a good like inerrancy is a big one um it's even funny like with transubstantiation what is your definition of inerrancy uh see that's 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 one of those questions you're not allowed to ask because for me (laughs) to uh, me that just is so natural like well if no one has the same definition of inerrancy how can we find any biblical truth if if we're all going to be deducing different inerrancies if there's different types you know i mean we have that kind of solidified in the catholic yeah framework of biblical scholarship like Hmm. yeah so the one that's usually mentioned or like if a church actually goes that far, it's just, it would be like the Chicago statement of inerrancy and they do a pretty good job. And so I think this is actually where a lot of like, like more liberal biblical scholars, like, you know, that I learned from it, uh, Fuller yeah. seminary that they would say like, like there's, there's like some random thing in like first or second Kings or something like that, where it's like some giant like cauldron or, you know, they call it like the sea or something like that at the temple. It's, you know, they, they give the calculation for the circumference and the mm-hmm. diameter, something like that. And if you actually do the calculation, they've rounded probably the number of pi. So the, the calculation for pi is actually slightly off there. It's like right. instead, of, it's like just three instead of three point one four or whatever. Right. And uh, you could say that that's an error, uh, but they'd say, well, that's rounding, or that could be, you know, maybe they didn't make it to the proper, you know, to be an exact circle or whatever. Right. So like that's an easy example of where a more liberal theologian would say that's an error and that's okay. They're like, whatever, like we don't think it really affects the truths of Christ or whatever, but the Chicago statement of inerrancy is very specific where they'll say that's not an error. Or um, I think the big thing is actually, I think a lot of it is more focused on like Genesis one, that the earth has to be 6,000 years old. I was going to ask you, that's exactly what I was going to say. So are you, so would you follow kind of that fundamental you know, that fundamentalism of like, yeah, young earth, there's no way it's 13.8 billion years old. Um, I, I kind of find myself split between two camps. And it was funny, I, I posed this to like one of our elders and he, he thought like one of them was kind of ridiculous. And I was like, well, it's in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which I feel like every Protestant pastor has on their bookshelf. Yeah, right. He lists two that I really like that either it's sort of a theistic evolution or whatever, which if I recall the Catholic church at one po- a Pope at some point, has said like this is this is compatible with the catholic oh, faith yeah um so that it's something along those lines that yeah it's just you know the author of genesis one most likely moses was just yeah like we're just you know it's a reshaping of the the mesopotamian beliefs of you know you've been told sort of like when jesus says you've heard it said it's sort of you've heard it said that you know this was how the world was created out of you know the body of the goddess of chaos but i'm telling you that god ordered it out of nothing that just by speaking this yeah. is who god is Very and that the, yeah and then it's not meant to be a science manual of this is like exactly how the fish yeah. came about or whatever um so i'm like cool either that's okay or here's the other one that i'm cool with it but it, there's actually a bit of a theological problem with it is if the earth is six thousand years old 
we have to really grapple with, well, why is it that there are trees that we can like count the rings, if I recall, that are like right. have more rings than that? Or that, you know, we have like written documents, we have walls of cities, there's archaeological evidence that humans seem to have been around longer than that. And then there's radiocarbon dating, all that stuff, which I know a lot of my apologetics friends, you know, I, I've heard the issues with it. Um, but, you know, so, here, so here's the idea is, you know, when God created Adam and Eve, or when he planted the garden in Eden, was every tree a little tiny sapling or did he make it grow larger? And maybe did he add those rings in there? And so it's, it's the idea of God created the earth to appear old. And I, as a teenager, I heard that argument. I thought that sounds so reasonable. That, that makes sense of why, like, I, you know, God just put fossils in the ground that, that, that will be radiocarbon dated to seem this old and et cetera, et cetera. Never heard but, of that. Yeah. The issue with that is why would God do that? Like, why would he give us this evidence of an older earth if it's not that way? Or why, you know, why would, wow. you know, so, yeah. So that's a very difficult thing. So that's kind of where I stand, where I, I'm not that concerned about it, um, but I right. kind of land sort of in those two camps where I go, it's yeah. either got to be one of those. Um, yeah, in my perspective, even, you know, Augustine and Ignatius were talking about this, you know, early on in the early church. It, it was already clear that this wasn't something that we were supposed to take literally, that God created in six days and it had to be 24 hour cycle. And mm -hmm. so Fides is Ratio, Faith and Reason. Uh, is an encyclical that was uh, you know, written by JP2 and literally speaks of this reality of faith and reason. Like hmm. they're both the two uh, you know, wings that we can soar on to contemplation of God. And so we're actually really not super disturbed by those mm -hmm. like, confrontations of young, young earth, older earth. I believe as Catholics, we actually do like, we do believe that from the strata in the earth, archeological evidence, e even if those carbon testing, you know, methods aren't perfect, you are going against a immense plethora of scientific evidence that this earth is older than 6,000 years old. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know how people can look at hard meta-analysis data of, of multiple scientists, you know, who have, you know, studied archaeology and studied the layers of, I mean, you don't even have to look at trees. You just look at the layers of archaeology. and yeah. I mean, the earth has a lot of evidence that it wasn't, uh, you know, created 6,000 years ago. So, you know, Father George Lemaitre actually is a Catholic priest who discovered the Big Bang Theory. Hmm. So him and Einstein worked together on the Big Bang Theory. And Einstein actually said that Lemaitre, it's now called, NASA just came out. It said it's now called the Lemaitre Law. So huh. a Catholic priest Pulled discovered the Big Bang Theory. So once again, there's this beautiful kind of unison between faith and reason in the Catholic Church. And that idea of this kind of like fundamental six days, young earth thing, it just doesn't work with um, at least our model of like reasonability and, mm -hmm. and the like intellectual endeavor. So we also at the Vatican have like an incredible, uh, you know, scientific... Um, what do they call it? Uh, what's it called? The Vatican uh, Laboratory, I think. It like hmm. literally is like this incredible, um, you know, telescope that we have. It looks out of you. I mean, it's crazy technology. And obviously people bring up Galileo, which when you study into Galileo, the church actually wasn't condemning science at all. It was actually condemning uh, other conclusions that he was coming to that were um, hmm. actually 
come to find out, uh, Aquinas even talked about it, they weren't true. So they weren't getting mad at, uh, you know, Galileo discovering new scientific discoveries at all. They were getting mad of, you know, how he was, um, you know, speaking to the church and other church officials and stuff, whatever. People usually bring up all of these different um, confrontations in the church with those things. But again, yeah, we would, um, I think, side with like the evidence from science and um, also, yeah, like we have the interpretation of the church that certain scriptures are maybe more metaphorical or allegorical or literal. Like we, we have that um, interpretation. And so, yeah, I have a hard time listening. I've listened to quite a few of those, um, you know, debates and um, yeah, with kind of like the fundamental, um, almost on every topic, you know, fundamental, mm-hmm. fundamental Christianity. I just find it does a lot of damage to people. Yeah. Then, mm-hmm. then they just come to resent church, God, scripture interpretation in general. Um, and the Catholic church comes down hard on stuff when it needed to. Right. So mm-hmm. kind of like I was stating earlier, when dogma was um, declared, it was because of a confrontation in, in the world or in, in the world and the church that needed to be clarified. So it was always, again, a lived reality that you can see was not just something that they decided all of a sudden that Mary was a virgin and mm-hmm. she has been a perpetually a virgin. And, um, you know, so these dogmas of Mary or saints of the, or these things, um, you know, were never things that we just decided to declare a dogma is like, there was either a confrontation that was brought up that needed clarification. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find that to be really helpful with these topics. And yeah, there just seems like an endless abyss of, of, of back and forth, you know, that, that can happen in this realm, um, which, yeah, doesn't really seem to foster unity. If you've made it this far, I got to say, congratulations, because you listened to a bunch of philosophy and theology nerds really geeking out for a long time. And if you've made it this far, you might as well go to episode three, where I asked Andrew in just a lightning round some of my biggest questions about the Catholic Church, about the difference between theology and Protestantism, and all that good stuff. So, once again, thanks so much for listening so far, and I hope you guys make it to episode three.